Hello and welcome to the Advisory Board's Weekly Briefing, Episode 23, Year in Review. I'm your host, Dan Diamond, editor of the Daily Briefing, writer for Vox and Forbes. And today, slightly different episode, we're going to run through four things that we learned this year about healthcare. And we'll also talk about where we're headed on each one. And we'll wrap up the show as usual with our electives, that thing that we've seen or heard, read, shared, that we want to bring on the podcast and share with you too. I'm joined as always by my friends, Rivka Friedman, head of the Medical Group Strategy Council. Hi, Dan. Good to be here. Rob Lazaro, head of the Healthcare Advisory Board. Good morning. Good to see you both. Have you guys caffeinated yet this morning? It's weird that we're recording this in the morning. Normally, we're an afternoon podcast. I know. Normally, we're trying to get over our little midday slump, but... I'm working on it right now. I'm just surprised neither of you took me up on my offer for coffee delivery this morning. I didn't see your text. And I don't drink coffee. Crazy. Yeah. Are you guys... I'm enjoying my coffee. Are you guys uh, watching The Leftovers on HBO? And I thought I was the depressing one. No, I am not watching that show. depressing. What's it about? Uh, It's about a mysterious event where the world loses 2% of its population and has to recover. Is and there then a healthcare connection here? No, just, just some banter to get us started. No, it's a great show, but it really is very depressing. What are you guys watching this season? I don't know if either of you watched Saturday Night Live, but I caught up on it yesterday while I was folding my laundry. It was the holiday special with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, and it was hilarious. Of course. They're pretty great. There was one segment that we probably can't talk about on the podcast, but Meet Your Future Second Wife. Did you see that? No. <laughs> no. I, was, I was laughing hysterically. I don't know if my new fiance thought it was as funny. (laughs) (laughs) And back by popular demand, our old friend, the jargon jar. And what do we use the jargon jar for? Riv? The jargon jar is here. If we say any jargon, we'll stick a quarter in. Maybe you can spot us, Dan. I don't have any quarters today. And I don't know about you, but I actually got emails from listeners asking where the jargon jar had gone. I still get asked, where are the dollars in the jargon jar going? You mean both of them? There's there's maybe like, I'm holding it up right Probably now. five bucks. Yeah, like $5 worth of, of quarters here. If, if there is a worthy charity that we should steer those to, I, I know we would love to hear suggestions from listeners. You can email us at podcast at advisory.com. Some housekeeping before we jump into today's show. First, we're thrilled that this podcast got some recognition as the year wraps up. Dr. David Shaywitz, uh, the co-host of a great podcast called Tectonics, included the weekly briefing as one of his top podcasts for healthcare entrepreneurs. Then Apixio picked our episode on Theranos, I think that was episode 14, as one of the top five healthcare podcast episodes all year, along with a few episodes from Vox and Slate and a few other podcast outlets. Secondly, we've got one final episode for the year coming up where we answer your questions on the air. So keep your eyes and and ears peeled for that. It should be coming in the next week. For links on anything that we talk about today, you can visit, as always, advisory.com slash podcast. You can also email us, podcast at advisory.com, and find us on Twitter, weekly underscore briefing. On to today's show. 2015 was another major year of change, transformation for healthcare. And the three of us put our heads together and tried to figure out what were the biggest themes from the year. And we came up with a few, consolidation, payment transformation, tech dollars, consumerism, and and so on. So I think we're just going to jump in and talk about how those things changed healthcare in 2015. And where should we start? Yeah, so let's start with consolidation. I think when we started talking about what the biggest themes and trends were in healthcare, it was hard to ignore consolidation, in part because there have been so many things that have happened this past year, and in part because it's gotten attention, not just from the media and the public, but from regulators as well. So from my perspective, you know, one of the big uh, events from this year on the consolidation front is obviously two major deals, proposed deals, between insurers. So first we have the deal between Aetna and Humana, which I think is like a $37 billion deal, and then the Anthem-Cigna deal, which I think is $54 billion. I hope I have that right. I mean, those numbers are so big, it almost feels like monopoly money. <laughs> right, right. It's a, it feels like a joke. But it gives you a sense of how much, of how large each of those four insurers already is, and how large the two combined insurance companies would be if the mergers go through. And I think it also says something about 
the concerns that each of those four payers has about making it and being profitable in tomorrow's market if they don't become bigger. And I think one just thing to add here is obviously United Healthcare, which is currently partnerless, has made a lot of news this year for saying it won't participate in the health insurance exchanges because they're not profitable for them and they've lost a lot of money, which the, maybe provides some context to that. Not, not definitively that they won't, but they've right. been very hesitant about participating and then they might pull out moving forward. Right. So I, I think if you put those three things together, two proposed mergers and one mergerless organizations saying they're they're not doing so well at status quo tells you either insurance companies are serious that they really do need to get bigger and more consolidated in order to thrive or they're doing a lot of posturing to make that case and on the other side of the aisle there are providers who are getting mm-hmm. together not a new trend has been happening for years and years but the merger or potential merger of these insurance companies is new ammunition for why hospitals say they need to band together to kind of stand against that. Well, and I saw a stat recently that if the mergers go through and the big five insurance companies become the big three, they would have something like 43% of all of the commercial covered lives in the nation. Yeah. Leaving out basically the blues and then all of the smaller regional insurance players. Exactly right. Is is that good maybe? I mean, on the one hand, maybe it's efficient. Well, (laughs) good for the patient at the end of the day and other members of the healthcare industry. If, if you've got that kind of simplicity, maybe that's good. You know, you're asking an interesting question that I, I don't think I ever thought about it this way, but which, I guess it comes down to a question of which organization has the payer's best interests at heart, right? The patient's best, best the interest. The patient's, what did I say, the payer? Yeah, the patient's best interests at heart. Is it the insurance company that's covering the risk for that patient? Is it the provider organization that's doing the care delivery? Well, if I understand correctly, and Dan Riv, correct me if I'm wrong, but when these mergers are reviewed from or by regulators, different agencies look at them. So FTC looks at provider mergers, DOJ looks at health plan mergers. Is that right? Yes, uh, that's right. Does FTC also look at? I thought that FTC also looks at health plan mergers. Do they not? No. I, so I, I think DOJ is looking at the insurer mergers, like on the national level. But then there's also state regulators who need to take a look and say this is what the market will look like in our state and potentially should an insurer divest to make things more competitive on on a regional level. And one reason why these mergers or potential mergers are such a big deal is there's never been so much potential change all at once. And if you're a regulator, it, it is a little hard to make sense of what would the world look like if these two mergers went through in a certain area versus in another state where maybe there's no change at all. Well, the health plan mergers are interesting to me for for two reasons. If if you think about what a larger health plan can do, it's twofold. First, they can ostensibly negotiate lower reimbursement rates with providers, which could generate savings to the subscribers, to the employers, to the individual patients. So that could be good for the general public. The downside is if there are fewer options in health plans, they could then charge higher premiums. Right. Right. It's always a balance between getting bigger to get better and getting bigger just to command more power, which ultimately probably isn't good for the public. And Dan, just to touch back on what you were saying, I think you're right. I think the especially the federal regulators do not understand specific state dynamics that may play out. And they just it's impossible to get deep on an individual state or market's local dynamics to the extent that they would want to. And so barring that ability, do you know what I mean? Yeah, so I, I think if, if I can follow your thread, it's that the federal regulators are concerned about certain things on like a national level, but state regulators need to step in and figure out what the market's going to look like. Yes, there are also a lot of provider mergers that either have been proposed or are currently under review, or frankly, there are some that we probably haven't heard about, right? There are providers in probably provider organizations in many markets that are thinking about finding a partner and have yet to announce. And I think seeing the results from current ongoing reviews by regulators is going to inform their choices going forward. And Dan, I'm going to preemptively hand you a quarter for the jargon jar before I say that what we're seeing is both horizontal and vertical integration. What I mean there is we are seeing more hospital systems banding together or growing the number of hospitals in their organizations, but we're also seeing organizations, providers across the care continuum working together differently. So hospitals, physicians, post-shoot care providers merging into single entities. So horizontal integration, to define the term that you just had me pay for, that's when hospitals team up because it's horizontal. It's like all in the same. Similar services. Exactly. Vertical is top to bottom. 
different services. Yes. And if you're that patient, it's it's vertical almost because you're going through the, the system in a vertical way, at least in my head, as I'm both thinking about it and illustrating to you guys with my hands. Um, one interesting number that I saw earlier this year was just the amount of dollars related to m a in 2015. Back in September, the healthcare m a market had hit about $270 billion. Why that matters is because that was bigger than all of 2014, like through just September. And 2014 was, I think, the biggest year in healthcare M&A to that point. So there seems to be a trend here of rising M&A. Do we expect that to continue moving forward? Well, on one hand, maybe, because we know from our conversations with provider organizations that they're struggling and many of them are looking for a partner to improve their stability. Having said that, the other big news of 2015 is that some answers came back on the mer- proposed mergers that were being reviewed, right? So I think early 2015 is when we heard, is that when the St. Luke's merger was blocked? Maybe that happened in late 2014. But in other words, there are mergers that were proposed in 2015 that as of 2015 will now be rolled back. And so I think, again, we've got a lot of providers- Or are being challenged. Or are being challenged, right. So we've got providers that are waiting in the wings trying to figure out a strategy both based on their needs and also based on what they expect to be the response from regulators. One of the things that I've noticed in looking at some of these transactions is just the scale of them seems to be getting larger. So there's been a lot of hospital consolidation for years and years and years. And previously, it might have been two independent hospitals coming together to form a two hospital health system or a large health system adding one more hospital, so incremental growth. What we're seeing now are the mega mergers. So looking at CHE and Trinity coming together last year um, and some of the other really large transactions that are taking big, complex organizations, two of them and pairing them together. I think that's such an interesting trend, these regional super systems that are emerging, though to go back to something that you made, uh, a point that you made, Riv, the chilling effect potentially Mm -hmm. of scrutiny on the healthcare industry. And every time one of these deals is challenged, it certainly resonates across the industry to the point that other teams might think differently about how they want to proceed. And one trend that I know we continued to see this year was the non-merger merger, merger, Mm -hmm. right? The strategic alliance of organizations that shared some resources but didn't formally come together. The the partnerships and affiliations. We actually spent a lot of time studying this and and beginning of the year uh, published a really great graphic. It's called the Field Guide to Partnership and Affiliation Models. We should link to it on the the show page. Um, But I get lots of questions from our members about how do I work with someone without having to combine our balance sheet? Well, and increasingly, Rob, to touch on your point about scale, those partnerships and affiliations often used to be between two organizations who said, let's find a creative path forward. Increasingly, they will be you know, 15 organizations that are essentially competitors in every way coming together to form a loose partnership or affiliation, sometimes including either an employer or an insurer to create an interesting alternative to some of the larger systems in their markets. Although some of them are somewhat of, of bed warming strategies. Mm-hmm. So we have seen in some of those regional affiliations and alliances, some of the stakeholders then end up entering into merger conversations. And, and we keep saying some and being somewhat generic. Are there any specific examples that might come to mind? One example that comes to mind is the Allspire network in um, the the Northeast, and some of the members of, of that particular regional alliance have, have decided to merge. And what about Vividi? Isn't that another example of a bunch of organizations coming together, providers, insurers, to try to combat Kaiser? Vividi is a, a great example, Riv. So glad you mentioned it. So if you're not familiar with it, it's out in the LA market and a number of hospitals, health systems. So uh, UCLA and Cedar sinai and, and a few others are partnering with Anthem to create basically a narrow network product. Think of it as a kind of big ACO or narrow network that can be sold to employers or sold on exchange to compete against Kaiser. Yeah. So what that means to me is we try to link together the two areas of consolidation on the provider side, on the health plan side. It brings us back to conversations we had earlier this year on the podcast about um, different stakeholders expanding the breadth of their services and payers starting to look like more like providers and providers starting to look more like payers. One thing that I wonder, as health plans get more consolidated, how does that change the way that health systems, hospitals think about if they need to be in the health plan space too? Mm Mm-hmm. I think the other thing to watch if we're talking about how to how to think about this issue in 2016 is that 
It'll be interesting to see what all the organizations that are merging or partnering do with those partnerships, right? They provide some some stability in the near term, but they also provide huge amounts of currency to innovate, to try new things, and to try new things with a partner. And so I will be watching to see what kinds of creative narrow networks come out of these partnerships, what kind of other consumer offerings come out of these partnerships that are perhaps different than the ones we've seen in 2015. And, and one thing I'll be watching for is to see how many of these actually succeed. I mean, when you've got these various ideas and strategies in place, and some of them are so wildly different from each other, maybe they can all work, but it also seems like they're not all going to. Well, some of them aren't going to have the opportunity to work, right? The other thing we're going to watch is what do regulars have to say about these proposed mergers? So one reason why hospitals and physicians might be pushed together is because of payment transformation. Mm -hmm. And the need for figuring out how you're going to look as an organization in this new world Rob, can, can you catch us up on, this is really right in your bailiwick, how has payment changed in 2015? Uh, absolutely. And I've been studying payment transformation here at the advisory board since about 2009. And I will be the first to admit that a year ago, last December, I did not expect that 2015 would be the landmark year uh, that it's ended up being. Uh, and it started in January when Secretary Burwell uh, announced a clear timeline for the transition to alternative payment models. And by that, I mean things like bundled payment and shared savings and capitation. So these non-fee-for-service payment models. So this is a big deal because the very first time that HHS has given a clear timeline for the transition, there's been this sense that we're moving away from fee-for-service for a while, but this is the first time that HHS has put a, a, a stake in the ground and said, by 2018, um, interestingly, that's halfway through the next administration, 50% of Medicare payments will flow through these alternative payment models. And then as the years unfolded, we've learned more about what these programs will look like. So, and we've talked on the podcast about a lot of them, about the revamp of the Medicare Shared Savings Program, about the introduction uh, of the new next generation ACO model, uh, and absolutely the Comprehensive Care for Joint Replacement model. We had a, a whole segment about that, and that's the new mandatory bundle payment program in 67 markets. So we're seeing CMS continue to both refine the existing voluntary programs to try to make them marginally more attractive, but also dip its toe in the water of mandating this transformation, which I think is the huge deal. And even beyond what Medicare is doing, which is incredibly important given the ripple effects of whatever CMS opts to do or not do, is something that we were talking about pulling up for this podcast, the voluntary commitment from a number of organizations. I had completely forgotten this, but back right around the time that Secretary Burwell made this commitment of how Medicare was going to shift, there was also a coalition of providers, payers that said, by 2020, just five years away, 75% of their business would be value-based payment. And these are some major organizations, Partners Healthcare in Massachusetts, Advocate Healthcare in Chicago. So. When, it's also interesting because those are some organizations that have thought about changing not just how they're paid, but how they look. The other interesting thing about tying those two announcements together is that in some sense, the announcements are descriptors of the organization's projected future, right? They're saying, we expect that by 2018, 2019, our payments will be X percentage through risk-based models, or we'll be this, you know, our book of business will be this much at risk. But they're also, I think, in some ways, prescriptions or forcing functions. By saying that, you are essentially giving yourself running room and bandwidth to say, well, we promised to do this, and now we have to execute on that promise. And that uh, that has value for internal stakeholders. So if a CEO of a health system says, we're going to have this much of our book of business at risk, it's a good way to mobilize everybody in the organization, which is increasingly large, to do that. Obviously, also from CMS's perspective or from HHS's perspective, they're doing a lot of things in this space, a lot of tests, a lot of pilots, a lot of programs, pulling them all together into a soundbite that can be easily repeated and, and thought about by folks you know, Riff. outside of their orbit, I think is part of why they're making these big, bold statements. Riff, you're exactly right. It's a rallying cry. And in any of the programs that have come out across the year, HHS, CMS has continued to reference back to the Better, Smarter, Healthier campaign, which is is what they uh, the title associated with, with Secretary Burwell's announcement at the beginning of the year. One question I have is on the Accountable Care Organization program. So maybe I should throw a quarter in the jar just because we've been talking about some of these terms and not really defining them. But again, that's one of the pilot 
programs created by the Affordable Care Act, the idea that organizations would come together, take on more responsibility for population health, so all that care you're getting may be beyond the hospital. But one challenge was that the pioneer program specifically, like the best and the brightest hospital systems that were participating in that program, many have dropped out. I'm wondering, what does that tell us about the future of the ACO program? Was it simply a a good forcing function to get organizations focused on this path and maybe the pioneer program doesn't matter that much? Or does it suggest that this is actually a lot harder than we thought it would be and perhaps it's too optimistic to have organizations take on this responsibility? Well, to me, it, it highlights the challenge of the transformation. I don't think it's impossible by any means. And I think about it on two fronts. And, and Rivka, as you know, for years we've been talking about this journey to, to population health as being about two transformations that have to happen in sync. So providers need to transform both their care model, their clinical model, as well as their payment model, their financial model. And if you go too far in one direction without course correcting the other, you lose. So I think what we're seeing is that it takes time to both figure out what's the right clinical model to support population health, and that takes time to build, right? That's not flipping a light switch. That's investing in care management and care coordination and IT systems and provider partnerships. That all takes a lot of time, as well as the challenge of building out the right payment model. So if you get into the weeds of why For example, the Pioneer model that you referenced, Dan, has had some attrition. A lot of it comes down to the challenges of figuring out what's a nationally scalable ACO-style payment model that reflects the differences between San Diego and Boston. Right. I I agree with you. At a high level, that's probably why these programs have been difficult to implement for many and also difficult to scale across the country. But I think if you talk to any one organization about why they are pulling out, you find that the devil is in the details, right? So I've probably had, let's say, six or seven conversations like this. Why are you pulling out? Or why are you thinking about pulling out? Mm -hmm. And almost always it's the first thing that folks say is something seemingly small, a small piece of the pie. So one of the things that gets reiterated over and over again is the quality measures are not consistent with quality measures were being incentivized on by other payers or that we're using in our compensation models with our physicians. And you know that that seems like a small piece of what it takes to be an ACO, especially if you think about it in terms of what Rob said, changing the clinical model, changing the payment model. But those quality measures are crucial. You know, you've got a lot of soldiers on the front lines of these ACOs who are being asked to play a very specific game that is meaningfully different than the game that they've been playing. And those incentives make a huge difference. I agree with you, Riv. However, we need to acknowledge that the organizations that are leaving some of these Medicare ACO programs aren't abandoning population health altogether. They're looking at other contracting models. So I look at the latest news about the Pioneer ACO model. The most recent two organizations to leave that program uh, were both in the Boston area, Mount Auburn and Stewart. And they announced that they're moving into the next generation ACO model, which is more risk, more reward. So it's not that they are abandoning population health, that they want to find a different way to get compensated for their investments in population health. For all the talk about transformation in healthcare and payment, the other big theme around transformation was tech and out-of-industry players coming in to change the industry. And we'll talk about that in a second. But before we get there, just a quick reminder, for links on anything that we talk about, you can go to advisory.com slash podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Weekly Briefing, and look for us on Twitter to weekly underscore briefing. Okay, back to what I was about to talk about, which is the tech dollars flowing into healthcare. And just to give you a sense of the numbers here, there has been a general perception that there are more dollars, more deals coming from Silicon Valley into healthcare. I think we even had a segment on that earlier this year. We, right? we, we might have had several episodes. It's a hobby horse of mine. Was it Silicon Valley has dollars but no cents? Yeah, that was the one. Yeah, good memory. Um, well, they still have dollars, but maybe not as many in healthcare as we thought. Hmm. So Startup Health and Rock Health, two different groups that track where the dollars are coming, where they're going from Silicon Valley, I looked at their year-end data. Rock Health says that there's about $4.3 billion in various digital health funding this year. Huge number, but interestingly, about flat with the year before. Mm. Startup Health, which calculates things a little bit differently, says there was $5.8 billion in funding for digital health. Huge number, but down 
over a billion dollars from the year before. Do those two trends map to overall trends in venture capital? Because one of the things I keep reading about is we're in a VC bubble or we're in a startup bubble and Silicon Valley is going to burst at some point. So how do the healthcare VC trends compare to overall VC flow? That's a great question. So the boom in healthcare funding generally maps to overall VC dollars. And looking at that chart, which we should put on the advisory.com podcast page, you can see just a massive uptick in dollars over the past few years. Though what counts as healthcare funding or digital health funding is a little bit nebulous. For example, I was looking at what startup health counts as a digital health investment. Oscar, the health insurance company, they count that as a digital health company. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But from where I sit, it seems like an insurance company that happens to do some digital things. Theranos, positioned as a digital health company, well, interesting. It, it's a lab company. And maybe it's not even a very good lab company from what we know. Right. But there, it makes it hard because there is no generally accepted definition that every organization is going to use when rating this market. But I think regardless, yes, there have been lots of investments and some very interesting ones. Do they note any changes in what's being supported by funding? So for example, I know I'm trying to think back to the the investment episode, but I know we talked a lot about IT systems versus things like wearables. Excellent question. So I'm looking now just happened to have this handy, the Startup Health year-end review. Mm -hmm. The most active market, according to their rankings, patient consumer experience in 2015. Last year, in 2014, it was the fifth biggest market. Mm -hmm. The wellness and benefits market, up to number two in 2015, was number eight in 2014. So seeing more focus on the end user. For sure. Yeah, well, and it, that maps to the changes we've seen on in the non-tech healthcare space, right? So we talk a lot about how consumers are becoming more active purchasers of healthcare and users of healthcare and more demanding about the things that they want to buy once they're spending their own dollars. So I guess it makes sense that we see, you know, just to put a finer point on what you're saying, we see a lot more attention on the consumer experience. And that includes both things like apps that patients can use to track and monitor various aspects of their healthcare spending and healthcare uh, utilization, but it also includes things like consumer relationship management systems for providers, right? Which I know is a big area of investment right now. Huge area of focus. As in, there's been some big news. We talked. Uh, I think it was your elective mm -hmm. last month about uh, Geisinger Health Systems' new announcement that if you're dissatisfied with your experience, you can get your money back. Uh, but a lot of focus on on engaging the consumer. Consumers are making more choice. They bear more risk. I know we're going to talk about this in a the next segment. Yeah, don't steal the thunder. <laughs> but but if consumers are going to actually act like consumers, they need the right tools to be able to make good decisions to shop around. So one interesting trend that I was watching this year was the Google help out trend. Or Sorry, not trend, I guess a product. Do you guys remember this? I, I see mm -hmm. quizzical expression by Rob. Nope. I think I got a request to participate in it. it which, which maybe shows how flawed it was because the goal yeah. was not to connect people to researchers. It was to connect folks searching on Google to healthcare professionals hmm. and to match up if you're looking for, um, I've got X number of symptoms, Google would be the go-between to connect you with the clinician. That never really caught on, which I think speaks to one of the broader challenges with helping consumers get where they want to go. But so much of the hype in healthcare tech these past couple years has been about changing the patient experience, whether tracking their data, giving them wearables, whatever it might be. And my question to you two is, for all the talk and hype, do you feel like we're seeing the actual transformation in healthcare from tech yet, or is it still too early? And we're just at the beginning of the impact of various devices. I think it's still too early. I think there is more data available and folks are still trying to figure out what exactly do you do with it. So Dan, you talked about before professional sports teams trying to figure out if they can predict injuries by using wearables more. So yes, there's more data, but I think it's still just too early to put it to, to full use. I think there's one interesting thing happening here, which is that 
especially hospitals, health systems, medical groups, are investing in building up two sets of capabilities simultaneously. The first is the actual brass tacks. So how do I build a system? What does the system need to have? What kind of decision trees does it need to have built in? The second is, what do I do with the system to improve my stickiness? So patients who are coming to me, patients who stay loyal to me. And I think those are two very different undertakings, right? One, very operational in nature and involving a lot of IT expertise. The other, much more about brand. So I had an interesting conversation with a medical group executive earlier this year who is investing very heavily in building out their portal capabilities. And after having a lengthy conversation about the IT backend, he said, I have to tell you, the number one thing we talk about is how important it is to make sure that we can brand this as our system, which seems like a small thing. But from a health systems perspective, if they're going to throw a lot of dollars into building up this capability, they want to get credit for it with consumers. Well, and Rick, as you know, this has been an area where I've been spending the last six, seven, eight months of my life studying. Um, what does, how do you compete on consumer experience? What does that look like for a, a hospital, for a health system? So we end that research study by looking at how do you build a durable relationship? And, and the short answer is that it's not about trying to lock in your patients. This is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately as, as I've been moving residences. Um, people talk a lot about how hard it is to get out of their cable contracts. I got out of mine in 15 minutes. Yeah, me too. And I was really surprised when, and not to get too personal, but I had to find a new dry cleaner. And looking at ways of creating stickiness, when I went to the new dry cleaner, they gave me the bag, they told me about the express drop-off, everything's by email. They're making it easy for me to be a repeat customer. So that's what hospitals and health systems need, need to do. They need to make it easy for patients to come back, yeah, not make it harder for them to leave. For them to stay, right? You want the path of least resistance to be loyalty. And part of that is by demonstrating that you know the patient and can give them the right care in an efficient, easy to consume way. Yeah. When I think about the tech takeaways from 2015 and where things might be going in 2016, the most hyped healthcare tech news of the year in my mind was around Apple Watch its launch, what it could do, or in reality, what it didn't really do. Has it fulfilled its promise for you, Dan? <laughs> I'm trying to look on your wrist to see if you're wearing it. Your I, yeah, I'm, I'm, it. I'm hiding it because it, I'm not as proud of my Apple Watch as I was a number of months ago. <laughs> really, it's, it's more an expensive bauble than anything else. I'm still glad I got it. It's interesting to see, but it hasn't transformed my health. And Apple has yet to release any studies showing its impact. So is that an expectation issue, though? Like, did you expect that it was going to be revolutionary and it wasn't? I think Apple primed Dan to expect that. And part of Apple is a lot of hype. And exactly. Part of the promise of this device was around health and fitness. That's Apple. like part of the promise of the new iPhone is that it captures all of these photos a split second before you actually click the button, right? So that you can it can choose the optimal photo based on this you know, five seconds of live footage or something. What they don't tell you is that you don't have nearly enough data capacity on the average iPhone to maintain all of that. A lot of promise that is more hype than reality. Well, a Apple has rolled out in the past couple of years a few things that might not be ready quite for prime time. And I think the Apple Watch was a bit of that, where there are really interesting potential applications, but the device is not as easy to use as some other Apple devices might be. And intriguingly, Apple is hinting that they have another medical device in the pipeline. So Lord only knows if, if the promise will outpace the reality there too. But kind of flipping things around, there is one other big tech story from 2015 that I think we overlooked just a little bit, and it's around electronic health records. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're not sexy anymore because they've been around and we've discussed them kind of as part of the system as opposed to something new. But healthcare organizations are still making massive investments and bets on their EHRs. And I was reading something in Stat News a week or two ago, the great new healthcare site on the Brigham in, in Boston, the great hospital system. And for the first time in 15 years, they had a budget shortfall and not a small one, like a $50 million budget shortfall. Do you know why that happened? EHR? EHR, their EHR investment, big factor, not the only factor. You mean it just cost a lot more money than they expected or? Yes, they, they switched over to Epic. Mm -hmm. They ended up spending $20 million more than they were expecting plus whatever associated costs there. And one thing I'm looking to see in 2016 is the increasing expectation that EHR is going to deliver versus whether it's actually delivering and the accountability associated with that. We've seen a number of hospitals and health systems hold senior leaders accountable when the EHR system didn't 
the implementation didn't pan out. Right. We know that this is a source of much anxiety for pretty much everybody within a health system when EHR is happening. The implementation is just one thing. There's obviously all this work that has to go to changing workflow protocols to you know, align with what the EHR is structured to do. But I will say there is another interesting thing happening on the EHR front, which is that organizations, well, let me be specific. Some of the medical groups I've spoken to who have lived through the nightmare of EHR implementation and optimization, many not just once, but multiple times, are now deciding perhaps a bit more consciously that EHR is structured to do certain things, but not all things. And so I have heard anecdotally about many provider organizations, specifically medical groups, investing in small niche solutions to specific problems that some EHR companies would tell you they are structured to deliver, but where the medical group would sort of agree to disagree with the EHR company. So what are some examples? So one example is a patient portal. I think a lot of EHRs offer a portal, and there's an argument for keeping that portal connected within the EHR, but not all companies are. Um, another great example is telehealth. So we're seeing a lot of organizations invest in dedicated telehealth platforms, whether it's provider-to-provider e-consults or a platform to do virtual visits direct to consumer for a variety of different specialties. Uh, we've talked sev- to several EHR companies that either are currently or are trying to become structured to do those things, to do telehealth visits. But there are obviously, whether it's MD Live or American Well or Teladoc or Doctor on Demand, there are many companies that are not EHRs that are just trying to solve this problem for medical groups and hospitals. And I think we're seeing more interest in those things. And perhaps that signals a an acknowledgement that the EHR is doing its best work when it's just doing sort of basic traditional EHR stuff. Well, and Rivka, the two that I would add to the list, I know we talked about it earlier, but CRM, customer relationship management tools, and then secondly, performance analytics, saying we have all this data and we need to figure out what to do with it to actually improve our performance. Thinking about data, that might be a good peg for our final topic from the year, which is consumerism and trying to help patients better navigate this health system that can be overwhelmingly opaque to them. And there are so many data sources now that one could even look at if, if a patient was shopping around. Well, one of the things that I find most striking is that we're asking patients to make fundamentally different decisions than they probably ever have before. So we last week talked about open enrollment for the uh, public exchanges. Buying a health plan on a public exchange is something that except for the past two years, no one has ever done before. And it's very different than picking your employer-sponsored coverage out of the two or three options you might have at your job. Mm -hmm. So not only do people have more exposure with higher deductibles, but they're actually having to make different and kind decisions, probably without having the complete set of tools to help them make them. Right. Let's add to the list one specific decision point that is relatively new for most patients, which is actually having to think about how much a procedure costs and being able or interested in comparing prices, So, or I should say price to patient, right? How much I will have to spend as a patient to get a certain procedure. That is something for which a few years ago there was basically no data available and also which most patients didn't care about because the amount of exposure that they have now is so much higher than it was. Because of the rise of the high deductible health plan where- (laughs) You said that just to put a jargon, a quarter in the jar. Yeah, to pay myself the quarter that I've taken out of the jar to put back in the jar. But the idea that more patients now are being moved into these plans that offer less coverage and more- or a higher higher first dollar exposure to cost. Yeah. Do you know the formal definition for a high deductible health plan? Is it like $500 or more? Lower? I, I think it's $1,000. Oh, okay. And $1,000 doesn't really sound like a high deductible anymore. So right. when we hear about people having $5,000 deductibles for an individual or a family with $10,000 deductibles, that's a real financial exposure. That's real skin in the game. That's basically a catastrophic coverage health plan, right? You're essentially self-pay unless something really terrible happens. I once heard a CEO of a health system describe it as patients being self-insured mm-hmm. for most services. Right. And if you're self-insured, you care a lot about how much any individual procedure costs. And I think that's part of why we're seeing patients care about these things, part of why price conversations are happening more and more between patients and clinicians. But it's also, down back to the VC conversation we were having, why there are so many new technologies trying to collect and disseminate in a readable, usable way data about prices for specific procedures by region. And there are a number of ways we've seen that play out. So I think earlier this year, Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina about how they released hospitals prices for a whole range of procedures. So, And then a few months later, a number of payers came together and they formed a website called guru.com that has something like 3 billion claims to give you regional pricing estimates. 
And in the meantime, different organizations stepped forward to put their data online, whether it was the ProPublica Sturgeon Scorecard, which we, we talked about, a somewhat controversial move, but still an effort to make outcomes more clear, as well as Yelp tracking, patient ratings, and so on. Well, right. It's not just price information that we're seeing publicized and we're seeing demanded. It's also ex- information about the patient experience, whether it's wait times data being published by organizations. So you can sign on and say, I want to go to a clinic today. What is the wait time at all the 15 clinics ac- across my region? Or experience data. There are several healthcare organizations that have made news for saying they're going to proactively publish their patients, sorry, their clinicians' patient satisfaction reviews online. And that's a huge topic. And I, I know you and I both spent a lot of time talking to leadership teams about that right now, Rivka. Um, but hospitals and health systems are becoming so much more transparent because they realize that this information is getting out um, and that if they aren't actively part of the transparency process, it's going to happen to them. So it's much better to share more information rather than just let the cranky patients go to Yelp and write bad reviews when they're collecting so much of this patient experience data. Now they're choosing to share it, whereas before they only use it internally. That's right. I I actually think we should give them some kudos if we can. It is encouraging to see provider organizations, specifically hospitals and health systems, proactively try to manage the message around the uh, their providers or their clinicians' patient satisfaction scores or their price. I think there, there was a different reality that could have taken hold where they just said, you know, we're going to let Yelp own this and we're going to worry about everything else. And it's, like I said, it's encouraging to see them really trying to manage the message here. I agree with you completely. And I don't think the kudos are just for being involved in the process, but for sharing everything good and bad alike. Mm-hmm. So it's not, they're not screening out any of the negative reviews. They're willing to air some of the dirty laundry. Um, and what we've heard anecdotally is that actually helps drive performance improvement because no physician wants to have patients with a negative perception, let alone being publicized. I I love when organizations embrace intellectual honesty like that. I think it's so great to see that out in the open. This is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately as as I've been moving residences. Um, People talk a lot about how hard it is to get out of their cable contracts. I got out of mine in 15 minutes. And I was really surprised when, and not to get too personal, but I had to find a new dry cleaner. And looking at ways of creating stickiness, when I went to the new dry cleaner, they gave me the bag. They told me about the express drop-off. Everything's by email. They're making it easy for me to be a repeat customer. When does healthcare get real consumerism like that? Are we ever going to get it, given how complex the healthcare system is? Or are we now on a path where things will resemble that more traditional market? So think about the conversation we had last week with Anne, who is Anne Filippich from Enroll America, who is telling us that now when you sign onto the exchanges or when you sign onto Enroll America, there's actually a tool that lets you put in your zip code and figure out which providers are in that area that could serve you or which plans are there, right? So we are seeing movement around the corners to try to help consumers make more informed decisions that are not necessarily intuitive for the average consumer to make. I think it plays out one of two ways, I think. So one version of it, Riv, that you're alluding to is that when someone picks their health plan, they're essentially picking a narrow network of providers and they're betting on those providers for the year. They're pulling forward that decision about who will treat them when they pick their health insurance. Even if they don't know they are. Exactly. The other option is someone has high high deductible, broad network, and then is actively shopping for everything across the year. I think those are two very different purchasing dynamics. So that's what we thought about 2015. Yeah, there's a t- I mean there yeah. is a ton going on. Like I, just as as a closing thought here, I remember back in 2010 when we were doing research on the ACA and it was in a very exciting time and we thought, god, how lucky are we to work here when there's so much change and transformation in this industry right now? And I remember looking back at some of our studies from 2008 which covered the recession and the downturn and how to, you know, achieve financial solvency and other other things that were very important but perhaps less sexy. This is continues to be an exciting time in healthcare 5 years down the road from the ACA. And so it just, you know, I think there is no shortage of other things we could have talked about. I think these are the four big ones that came to mind for us. Well, it, it sounds like the only constant in healthcare right now is change. <laughs> But True. one one constant on our podcast is the electives, which I think we should move on to now. So Good segue, Dan. yes, and and the constant is my same scripting every week. The thing that you've what Read is it, guys? Or talked about or saved on your iPad that we want to share with you too. too.
But that's how I feel. So <laughs> I want to share it. So are, are we ready with our electives We're this ready. week? We're ready. Rivka, why don't you start? Well, to close out the year, I thought I would pull in an elective from somebody we've never talked about today on this podcast. Aaron Carroll, <laughs> writing in the Times. Um, I don't know who if has no financial interest in this podcast. We he should just like has clarify. No financial interest in this podcast <laughs> yeah. is true. Um, if you've been following Carroll's blog posts and articles in the Times, he's been writing about a lot of vices, so sugar, salt, caffeine, etc. And what better time than the holidays and then New Year's and resolution season to talk about the big other vice that he's ignored, which is alcohol consumption. So there's a great piece from him in the Times this week about essentially reviewing the literature about correlations between alcohol consumption and a variety of health conditions. And the findings are interesting. They were surprising to me in some cases. So on the correlation side, there is some evidence that consuming alcohol in moderation, which I think most of the studies he cites define as one drink a day, has some mild effects for cardiovascular disease. I think it has neutral effects for blood pressure compared both to no drinks a day and two drinks a day. Um, there was at least one study involving red wine who seems to have a po- which seems to have a positive correlation for folks who have diabetes. So he also talked about the relationship between alcohol consumption and cancer. Unfortunately, the news there is less wonderful than for cardiovascular disease and and or diabetes management. There seems to be a positive correlation between alcohol consumption and incidence of breast cancer and maybe some other cancers. But overall, I would say if you if you read that piece and sort of take the results together, it seems like Alcohol consumption in moderation is not a terrible thing for health, although he does make sure to say both at the beginning and at the end that if you don't drink alcohol, this is not an invitation to start. So with that, maybe wishing us all some moderation, both around the holiday season with vices and also as we go into January, where I expect to see many of us hitting the gym, a la New Year's resolutions. That, that is my very New Year's friendly elective. Rob, what do you have today? So as I sat down to plan out my final elective of 2015, I thought about where I have found a lot of inspiration, uh, and it comes from The Incidental Economist and one of Aaron's colleagues, and I, you know how much I've loved Aaron's writing, I'm also a big fan of Austin Fracht. And uh, this was actually the first time I thought we might have the same elective. Yeah, I thought so too. We were close, but this one is from Austin, and it's called How to Write Part 4. Did you guys see this piece? I'm only on how to write part two. I've got to catch up on the rest of the series. So if you missed the series, Austin sat down to explain how he writes one of his Upshot blog articles. And um, in some respects, it's it's explaining step by step. In others, you actually see iteration. So three and four are fairly similar. Four is is the iteration. Uh, I want to share with you all some of my favorite excerpts from the piece. Uh, And I want to start with the first paragraph. He starts with, This sentence should make me want to write the next one. It should make you want to read it. In a nutshell, that's my best answer to a question I receive frequently, how do you write? And he goes on to explain that my ambition at the outset is only to figure out how it starts, the first few sentences or the lead. So his whole takeaway, and he actually goes back to this in the conclusion, is the lead is the most important part. And if you don't get the first few sentences right, the rest doesn't matter. He he explains how the lead basically establishes not only the the point of the article, um, but also everything that follows and how it should be logical. Um, One of my other favorite pieces of advice that he gives... Oh, wait, wait. Can I jump in with something? Please. So just taking listeners behind the curtain of the daily briefing we think disproportionately about the headline and the lead because that is not just the frame for the story, but for a lot of people, that's the only thing they're going to see. And you have to figure out what is the thing that is going to get them to dive into the article. And I was joking with Austin when he was writing the How to Write series that I was going to write the How to Read mm. <laughs> component. It, was it just going to be one line? Please read it all. <laughs> well, there I mean, there are kind of a couple of ways to think about it. One, how do you read smartly to take insights away? And I think one pleasure of reading Austin and Aaron is they do such a good job of making those insights accessible. But then there is the component, too, of you're writing in hopes that someone on the other end is going to be there and engaged and take away. And that's why these tips are so useful. When I think about feedback, Dan, that you gave me on an article that I wrote a few years ago, where you told me that it was way too long and that I need to remember that when someone sits down to read something, they are making a commitment to us. 
That that sounds like something I would say with, with my short attention span, but yes. So back to Austin's advice, though. One of my favorite pieces of his guidance, and I'm going to quote here. He says, there are a few sentences that can't be improved by shortening them. The periods in between allow the reader to rest, to consolidate thoughts. I almost always revise to shorten, not lengthen. That's such good advice. So it's a great piece. If you do any writing professionally, personally, I absolutely think you should take the four minutes to read uh, Austin's piece on how to write. Jump right to part four. Dan, what do you have to round us out this week? So I, I love that we're all playing to type. You guys cite The Upshot and The Incidental Economist. I'm going to go to a video in a second. But the reason I was thinking about this video is it, it's from a, a classic movie, a movie that lots of us are thinking about right now. And Love I'm, Actually. I, <laughs> I've the, never seen Love Actually. What? Knowing you, the Lego movie? It's insanity. Great. Lego movie is great, but, but it's not a classic in the way that this movie is. I, I'm clearly talking about Home Alone, <laughs> which turns it. 25 this year. Wow. And, and we were all little kids when it came out. We, we all saw it when we were kids, right? Like a billion times, yeah. Right. And like, you, you, I, I know that I wanted to be that kid in the movie who sets up all the traps to defeat the bungling burglars and thinking just how cool that was. I saw it again on, on HBO the other day. The movie is like sadistic. I mean, it's like a snuff film when you're watching <laughs> these these idiot burglars get like things dropped on them and like terrible. stabbed. And it's, I mean, it's- Shot with BB guns. Yeah, it's like actually kind of a horrible movie to yeah. watch. And the second one is even worse. So I- I remembered something that I had seen kind of in passing on the internet a year ago, and it's from um, Honest Trailers. Maybe you guys have heard of this. If not, I, I love it, where they take a movie trailer and then they kind of do it honestly. <laughs> That's great. And then they went one step further and came up with a spinoff. It's called like Honest Action. So Die Hard, the Bruce Willis, you know, he's John McClane and like jumping off buildings. They got a doctor to actually watch that and say what would happen to him. So they did it also with Home Alone. They got a doctor to watch what would happen to the burglars. And I just want to play a quick clip from Honest Action. Skull Fracture with Epidural Hematoma. Marv is dead. Skull Fracture with Epidural Hematoma. Marv is dead. Penetrating so what, what is happening in that clip, and you should go to our page to see it for yourself, but in about a 15-second span of the movie, the character, Kevin, is throwing bricks at the burglars and literally killing one of them like four times in a row. But because it's a movie, he's just like kind of woozy and like they're making jokes about it. And it's so awful to watch. I This is actually something I feel when I watch these movies and see these characters suffer. It I don't know what it Me is too. about it. Like, I'm empathetic. overly empathic. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, that's, that note, let's all have a season of empathy. Yes, and and Preferably. drink drink with moderation, right. write smartly, and not throw bricks, even if it's at a burglar who's trying to break into your house and you're a ten year old trying to guard it. Um, thanks to our producers today, Joe Shrum, Stephen Shorter, our interns, Emma Kellum, Rachel Woods, and we'd love to hear from you about how you've enjoyed the podcast across 2015. You can email us at podcast at advisory .com. For links on anything that we talked about, you can go to advisory.com slash podcast, and we'll be back again with a question and answer edition of the weekly briefing next week. 